You're listening to the podcast Bible Companion series by author P.H. Thompson. This is a chronological Bible study going chapter by chapter, discovering Christ in all of Scripture. This is Joshua chapter 5. Verse 1. Word reaches Canaan. Now when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until they had crossed over, their hearts melted in fear, and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. So while those in Jericho may have witnessed the actual miracle of the opening up of the Jordan as a roadway for the Israelites, and saw the ark going on ahead of them, which they would have associated with a deity, word spread quickly to the neighboring city-states, and the result was fear and lack of courage to engage them. They already knew that the crossing of the Red Sea forty years earlier, but now it was happening on their doorstep. They knew that the river was at flood stage, so that made it even more amazing. It wasn't just the fact that Israel had crossed the Jordan, but that the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until they had crossed over. So this army had God on their side. How could they possibly succeed against them? Later, they will gather up the courage and attack, but for now they are frozen with fear. This fulfilled God's promise. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. So this would encourage the Israelites to take advantage of this moment and seize the day. To not go forward now would be a denial of faith. This also fulfilled one of the reasons for the miracle which Joshua mentioned in uh, in Joshua 4.24. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. Verses 2-9, to Circumcision at Gilgal This short reprieve, while their enemies are frozen with fear, gives the Israelites time for some necessary spiritual preparations. Just as God promised they would not need to fear their enemies once they were in the land and left their homes three times a year to keep the feasts. In, in Exodus 34-24, It says, I will drive out nations before you and enlarge your territory, and no one will covet your land when you go up three times each year to appear before the Lord your God. So the children of Israel have left Egypt, wandered in the wilderness for forty years, and crossed the Jordan River. They have marked the event with a memorial of twelve stones. But there was still more to be done before the conquest on this side of the Jordan began. This generation of men had not been circumcised. At that time the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gibeath Haraloth. When we hear again, it can be confusing, since one can only be circumcised once. But it was a reboot or recommitment to the covenant with a new generation. Then we hear an explanation of the reason. Now this is why he did so. All those who came out of Egypt, all the men of military age, died in the wilderness on the way after leaving Egypt. 
All the people that came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness during the journey from Egypt had not. The Israelites had moved about in the wilderness forty years until all the men who were of military age when they left Egypt had died, since they had not obeyed the Lord. For the Lord had sworn to them that they would not see the land he had solemnly promised their ancestors to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So he raised up their sons in their place, and these were the ones Joshua circumcised. They were still uncircumcised, because they had not been circumcised on the way. And after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in camp until they were healed. So the descriptor, a land flowing with milk and honey, was a way of saying it had not only all they needed, but it was full of goodness. And this phrase was first used by God in Exodus 3.8, when he first promised to bring them to the promised land. The rite of circumcision and the feast of Passover were not done during the years of wilderness wandering because the covenant was in suspension because of their disobedience. This would be the equivalent of having an unsaved, unbaptized church congregation. But now this covenant was being renewed so this generation could take part in the covenant promises. So Joshua was faithful to God's command and obeyed right away. This would have been all the males under the age of 60. This rite had been ignored during their time in the wilderness, but now God wanted them to start out right in the promised land. It was a sign of their identity and special relationship with God. Though bronze tools had replaced stone by this time, they still used the traditional tools of flint knives for this religious rite. And this would remind them of the incident where Zipporah used flint knives to circumcise Moses and their sons. It could also be that flint knives were quick and easy to make for such a large population. So while it is a minor operation, it still required a few days of recovery to heal from a potentially infected wound. Recall the Dinah incident with the men of Shechem. So while at this point, we do not know that there will be a miracle involved in taking Jericho, but assume it will be a purely military campaign. But they will not lose their advantage by being faithful to spiritual priorities. And as we studied in Genesis chapter 17, it should be noted, although it's sad that it needs to be said, but we are told repeatedly that this rite is to be performed on males only. The practice of female genital mutilation, or FGM, formerly misnamed female circumcision, is mandated nowhere in scripture. This horrendous practice is in no way similar to male circumcision, which is done young enough that the pain is forgotten, and removing an unnecessary piece of skin that in no way affects sexual functioning. By contrast, FGM is often done on a young girl around the age of five without anesthetic and it scrapes away most if not all of the female external genitalia including the clitoris preventing future sexual enjoyment and causing many health problems and medical complications. There are no health benefits to this practice. It is a practice that should be stopped and spoken against. In 1993, the UN called it a human rights violation and violence against women 
rather than a health issue. God approved of their obedience. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the place has been called Gilgal to this day. And Gilgal means rolling. And this reproach was the ridicule that they experienced when they were in Egypt, mocking them as a non-nation, and also the potential ridicule they would have faced if God had failed to fulfill his promise. Now they were a nation in their own land, free to serve God as he intended when he first called them out. Verses 10 to 12, first Passover in Canaan, manna ceases. So the final event before the conquest wars began was a celebration of Passover, the first time in the promised land. Since Exodus 12.48 specifies that no uncircumcised male could eat the Passover, it needed to be done first, and so it was. They remembered where they had come from, a land of slavery, and the cost of their protection, the blood of the substitute, sacrificial lamb. God had literally passed over their houses when the angel of death went through the land of Egypt. He said, When I see the blood, I will pass over you. So they looked back and rejoiced that God had been faithful to his promise to bring them out of Egypt in order to bring them into Canaan, the land promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses had said, Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. So God had multiplied them, and they were now in the land. On the evening of the fourteenth day of the month, while camped in, at Gilgal, on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. It's not just a coincidence that they were in the Promised Land on the exact month and day the Passover was to be celebrated. This time marker was important. The rest of the book is not as specific. The Exodus was not just about going out of Egypt, but of being brought into Canaan. By looking back at how God had brought them thus far, their faith was strengthened for the task ahead. They knew God would give them victory in their battles. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year they ate the produce of Canaan. So God had faithfully provided the bread of heaven for them to eat for forty years. But when they began to eat the produce of the land, there was no longer any need for it. It arrived when they needed it and continued as long as they needed it. God provided right up to the end, so they never had a day when they were hungry. And this taught them that the years of wilderness wandering were really over. This would have been an exciting and yet frightening time to a generation that only knew the security of life with manna. And this also teaches us not to expect miraculous provision when ordinary means of supply are provided by God. There was no going back. The river was overflowing. The manna had ceased. There was nowhere else to go but forward. 
So some would argue that the Israelites lost their advantage by stopping for circumcision and then the Passover and failing to seize the day while their enemies were terrified. But spiritual priorities and faithfulness should always take precedence. God would make sure they would be victorious even with the delay. Verses 13 to 15, Joshua commissioned by the Lord. Then we have a scene reminiscent of Moses and the burning bush when God first sent him to redeem Israel from slavery. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or are you for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down on the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. This was Joshua receiving his commission to take the land. So who is this man? He has a drawn sword in his hand, indicating he will help Israel to be victorious in the conquest of the land. He has the power of life and death in his hand. He is ready to defend his people. In Deuteronomy 20, verse 4, God promised, For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you victory. And this was similar to the angel of the Lord who opposed Balaam, who also had a sword in his hand. But when Joshua first sees him, he is wary and he investigates. He wants to know if this man is for them or against them, friend or foe. The man answers, neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And you would expect him to answer, of course I'm for you. But he is in charge of a greater army. He is the commander of the army of the Lord, and they will be the ones to fight for Israel on his command. So Joshua immediately understands the implications, so he falls down before him in worship. As a servant, he humbly asks what is required of him. He is ready to obey. Then, like Moses at the burning bush, he tells him, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. So Joshua did so. But then we know, but then we aren't told any more of the conversation, and that is because we don't need to know. We may be curious, but sometimes scripture keeps these things shrouded in mystery. This is no ordinary man, nor even an angel. Angels refuse worship. This is believed to be a theophany or Christophany. That is a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus. He existed before being born in Bethlehem. He has always existed. In the Old Covenant, there are times when a person appears who is distinguished from angels and humans, and who speaks for God. Examples are when God appeared to Abraham as a traveler uh, in Genesis chapter 18 along with two angels, when he spoke to Hagar, when he wrestled with Jacob, and when he opposed Balaam, and later when he calls Gideon or when he announces the birth of Samson, and again when he is with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. Matthew Henry says, Christ will be to his people what their faith needs. So while Joshua had heard the voice of God speak from heaven 
when the rest of the Israelites did at the Ten Commandments, this was the first time God appeared to him personally. So this leader of God's people needs also to be led by God himself. Scarlet Threads So what scarlet threads or hints of Jesus Christ or application to the Gospel do we find in this chapter? When unbelievers heard how God had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the Israelites, they were frozen with fear. When God struck people dead for lying, it brought fear on both believers and unbelievers alike. Acts 5.11 says, Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. When false exorcists tried to use the name of Jesus to cast out demons, even though they didn't know him, the man with the evil spirit attacked them. And this caused a great revival. They were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Then they came and publicly burned everything associated with magic and the occult. That's in Acts 19. Gilgal was their first foothold in the Promised Land, and it anticipated future blessings and victories to follow. Our salvation is the first step, and our, as is our baptism with the Holy Spirit, and we can expect greater blessings and victories to follow, because the Holy Spirit is our down payment. Before they could move forward, they had to be circumcised as an act of obedience. We need to put away sin in the flesh and begin anew as new creations. Colossians 2.11 says, In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. We need to break with Egypt as Israel had. In a patriarchal society, only the male members of the family needed to be circumcised because they were the representatives of the family. Now, in the New Covenant, women are included as individuals. Even in the Old Testament, the spiritual implication of circumcision was explained. It represented repentance. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Deuteronomy 10.16 and Jeremiah 4.4 4 says, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Circumcise your hearts, you people of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, or my wrath will flare up and burn like fire because of the evil you have done. Burn with no one to quench it. And the Apostle Paul echoes this thought. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by His Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. In both the Old and New Testaments, many have made a profession of faith, but have not been in possession of faith. They may have seemed to be a believer outwardly, but were never regenerated inwardly. While regeneration is the New Testament equivalent of circumcision, when we are baptized, we identify with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, and it marks the beginning of our new life in him. 
They needed to celebrate the Passover in the new nation, recognizing where they'd come from, slavery, and that God had been faithful in bringing them into the land as he'd promised. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper to remember our redemption, what we are saved from, and the great cost to God, we also look back and look forward to Jesus' return and the consummation. When we are in our heavenly promised land, the New Jerusalem, we will feast and praise God for our salvation. The manna ceased once they ate the food of Canaan. God had faithfully provided for them for forty years, and it didn't end one day too soon. They always had food to eat. God is faithful to provide richly for his people all that they need. The word and ordinances are our spiritual food here, but once we reach the heavenly Canaan, we will no longer need the shadows, because we will be in the very presence of God. After circumcision and the Passover, God himself came to meet with Joshua. Ceremonies and ordinances have their place, but we need a personal relationship with Jesus. Joshua met with God himself and received his commission and marching orders. This is a theophany. Before Jesus' ascension, he gave the great commission to the church through the apostles. Joshua worshipped the commander of the army of the Lord. Jesus accepted worship because he is God. When the apostle Paul sees a vision of the ascended Lord Jesus, he falls down at its feet as dead. Later, he sees Jesus on a white horse, followed by the armies of heaven, and this will be at the end of the ages. Like Joshua, he will defeat our enemies and bring us into the heavenly promised land. This man has a drawn sword in his hand. Now we have the word of God, which is sharper than any two-edged sword, and which brings conviction to our hearts. And at the end, Jesus is described as having a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth, with which he will strike down the nations. This means he can destroy them with a word. Joshua asked, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The prophet Samuel, when he was a boy, said, Speak, for your servant is listening. When the apostle Paul was converted, he asked, Who are you, Lord? And what shall I do, Lord? We need to ask that every time we open up our Bibles, so he can speak to us. Joshua was told to take off his sandals, because he was standing on holy ground. This reminds the reader of Moses' commissioning and the same words when God met with him. This, along with the crossing through water on dry ground, recapitulated the calling and confirmation of Joshua, like Moses. For God promised he would be with Joshua as he had been with Moses. This man was called the commander of the army of the Lord. Even now he protects us. To 2 Thessalonians 3.3 3 says, But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. The Apostle John saw a vision of Jesus at the end of the age as a warrior who is coming to raise the dead, judge the world, and make all things new. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him on white 
riding on white horses, and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword, with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's in Revelation 19. You've been listening to the podcast Bible Companion series by author P.H. Thompson. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and comment. Continue listening for Joshua chapter 6. May God bless the study of his word.